Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Side, a podcast about black science fiction and fantasy and staying on the same page in this lovely marriage, right? I'm one of your co-hosts, Amber Wallet, and Ben is around here somewhere. Today, you're truly in for a treat because Ben and I got an opportunity to read the book Ring Shout, which was dope. And then guess what baby boy did? He did a good job. He reached out to the author, P. Jelly Clark, and we got to sit down with the author of Ring Shout, P. Jelly Clark, over, you know, a drink or two. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerful interview with an amazing historian and author. So let me pretend like we also have some listeners here so uh hey everybody today we are joined with mr p jelly clark uh he is born in new york raised in houston spent most of his formative years and his life in the homeland of trinidad and tobago with his parents he is the award-winning and hugo and sturgeon nominated author of the novellas the black god's drums and the haunting of tram caro 015 am i doing okay so far let Stop oh, me. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, because we don't, we don't play mispronunciations around here. His writings have appeared in online venues such as Tor.com, Daily Science Fiction, Throughout Fantasy, Quarterly, Apex Magazine, Lightspeed, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and in-print anthologies including Griot's Hidden Youth, Clockwork Cairo. His short story, The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington, has earned both a Nebula and a Locus Award, and he's a founding member of FIA Literary Magazine, which we will definitely talk about, and in Frequent reader at Strange Horizons. What a resume! Do you speak? Thank you, thank you. Only one thing, Griot. Just so that Griot. Griot. There you go. Griot. Griot. We got which, it. Which uh, we we have this collection as well. Um, so which was wow, that was like one of my first. Look at that throwback. It was, it was really fun to read. Uh, you have a great scene in this uh, collection, uh, Griot. Uh, did I say that? Yeah, that's it. Uh, you have this great scene with like almost like tentacle horror. Tentacle horror. Uh, it was so much fun. It made me think of a, a Lovecraft Country episode. But we'll we'll get into yeah. to all that. And, as and that well. story, by the way, has been uh, recently reprinted. Uh, so I was really happy because that story is like from 2011 or something. So it's been recently reprinted, and Serial Box is just in an audio uh, with it with an amazing uh, uh, person who's done the audible version. So Skin Magic, I'm, I'm saying this because Skin Magic, you can ask me about Skin Magic. It's a story that's dear to me because I had left writing and I came back through that story uh, for various reasons. And so I'm just happy that it's getting, that you guys have seen it <laughs> and that it's getting yeah. a bit more recent press, yeah. It's a lot of fun. And uh, for our listeners who are into science fiction and have ever read Ray Bradbury's The Illustrative uh, Man or The Illustrative Man, there's some elements of that in there as well. Yeah. One of my uh, favorite but, books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. Makes, it makes sense. See, y'all are going to buy. See, we, I, we, I'm not we sure. We can talk some Bradbury too. We can talk some Bradbury. <laughs> we, the, I'm not sure if Ben told you, but the whole premise of this, he brought Ring Shout to me, which I'm not going to lie. I saw the cover at first. I was like, oh my goodness, what did you just pick off of that? <laughs> he was reading I was it not, in my Can opinion. you believe that in the very beginning, I was, I was like a bit eh on the cover when they described it to me? Then I saw it and I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're going to go with that. Yeah, I was like, when they described it, I was like, eh. but, hey, no, we love it. We, I mean, we love it now, but just yeah. imagine me 
you, you no, know, my white no. husband coming home reading what looks like a clan manual. I was like, what the hell are you reading? And uh, now people are going to ask me, why are you with him? Why? So just, just for our listeners, so that the, the cover is like a KKK hood, but where the eye should be, there's these like poking little mouths like stitched together, like full on dentures. Uh, and then there's these like black hands encapsulating around the uh, hood and like an like almost like an offering pose. And uh, I mean, all your all your covers are like pretty eye catching, but unlike you know the Black God Strom or the Haunting of Tramcard Zero One Five, this cover felt like an interpretation of the right. actual story, right? Yeah, and yeah. So, yeah. So if you could search, uh, share just a little bit more about how that cover came about. Yeah. So it's funny. You, I mean, cover politics in in literature and sci-fi is a thing, and it's long been a thing, and so. They like you get consulted. It depends how big you are, right? Like I'm sure Stephen King gets to do whatever the heck he wants. <laughs> I'm not Stephen King, so you know uh, you get consulted. Like, what ideas do you have? And you can pitch all these ideas, and like they'll ask you, like, what do you think your characters look like? Thank you. Let me let me show you what. Uh, let me let me fan cast my my characters so you have an idea. And then they may come back at the end and say, yeah, we're doing we're going uh, design decide to go with something completely different. What do you think? And that's what happened here. And so I'd envision the cover because I am because I, I'm so much into covers that display uh, diversity. Because I think when I was coming up and I wanted to read books, I never saw myself or anyone who looked remotely like me on the front of covers. Like that's changed a lot. Like now, if I go into the YA or middle grade section, they're so diverse. There's so much. Not when I was growing up, <laughs> right? Um, I had to pretend Encyclopedia Brown was brown. <laughs> I'm so right. glad I'm not the only one that did that. Yeah, yeah I pretended exactly Brown. And <laughs> even books like Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea, where in the inside, the characters are brown and black. The politics of cover at the time created two white characters for the cover. And so it made me like, am I, am I crazy? What, what's going on here? The characters say they have brown skin. So who's this blonde kid on the, on the front? And so because I'm sensitive to that, whenever they ask me, what do you want for the cover? I want, I want the characters on there, right? I want like the Black God's drums, right? I think the Black God's drums, the cover of that was so powerful to have this 13-year-old uh, girl on the front cover with airships and her yeah. uniform. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, that cover, I think, drew people to the book. That cover is what I would have, if I had seen that cover when I was younger, I would have immediately snatched that book off the shelf uh, just for the cover alone. And so I wanted something like this for the Black for a ring shout. I was like, you know, I want Maurice on the front. I want, I want almost like a Charlie's Angels with Maurice, Chef. <laughs> and Sadie, <laughs> and, we all in you know, it. And, and yeah, and, and Sadie just all on the front, her with the sword and everything. And they were like, we want to go for something, as you said, Benjamin, more interpretive. And I was like, I was red cup, you know. <laughs> I was like, and, and this is what I uh, meme culture. I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> I, like, I don't know. I don't know. Mm -mm. Because people love to say like you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but it's like, but I, I when I do see a cover of someone that looks like me, I right because that's so infrequent. Yeah. Yes, because you're so, it's so infrequently done that when you do, you're gonna stop. You may not buy the book. You might read it and say like, oh, this is your but. I, you've caught my eye, right? And yep. so I, I push for that often in covers. And so when they came with me with this idea, 
after they'd asked me for what the characters look like, I was like, okay. And then I saw the cover and I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> it does stop you a little bit because you'll just be looking at, you know, because some, you know, it's in sections where there are other black authors right. in, in different stores around, mm-hmm. you know, the US or whatever. So you'll see like, Black black person, black person, KKK hood, black person, black person. You're like, wait a minute, I think this is the wrong section. And then you'll pick it up. You're like, oh, yeah. So I like that. You got to do a double take with. Yeah, and so it broke with my with my rule that I'm always pushing for, but I I still like what was done. At the end of the day, I had to give it to it. The artist, uh, phenomenal artist. He's done some other works as well, and it's just phenomenal art. Yeah, well done. You know, just going back to the Black God's Drums cover, you know, uh, the the ship in this story is called the Midnight Robber. Mm-hmm. And uh, for listeners who may or may not know, Midnight Robber is written by a, a wonderful writer, mm-hmm. uh, Nalo Hopkinson. And uh, but her when Midnight Robber came out, she actually had her cover whitewashed. Hmm. Uh, and and so um, and so she she talks a lot about this. So having this cover as it is and referencing Nalo Hopkinson's Midnight yeah. Cover for me felt like a really strong poetic justice. Excellent. Um, Excellent. No, that, that works great. And it's funny. Uh, so both Nalo and I, we have the Caribbean background and the Midnight Robber, like in her book, is this uh, figure in this character, right? This carnival type mythical character who you might meet on the road. He's basically that a robber. He has like a big bandolero and supposed to have two guns and except when you meet him what he's going to do is he will uh, spout a lot of verses at you <laughs> and claim he like he basically he's like the best rapper mc right he's just gonna like midnight rapper bars yes. about how great he is and you just have to and you have to try to challenge him and he'll go on talking about how excellent and perfect he is and i love that she she used that carnival character to create an entire story that's you know that gives you the secondary world that is very afro-diasporic and very afro-caribbean and all of these things in there and so when it's funny when i did the black god's drums when i wrote the first stories in that world uh they weren't centered around the main character from the black god's drums but the first stories when i started building that world were centered around the airship captain Anne marie and i had envisioned writing a series of books called the adventures of the midnight robber right where it's the adventures of her on this ship and it's really funny you said because i think when i first did it i gave it the name because of the character and then it hit me like oh this is also nalo hopkinson right it's as interesting that you had that because i would think that i was writing this i was like you know while i'm doing this i'm also nalo hopkinson is in here you know because at first we're because we're both pulling from these characters but she created this world with this character so that's great because people are going to know what it is and why, you know, this is a smuggler and a pirate, and why that's a perfect name for a, a ship like this. And so I ended up writing, I, I wrote some short stories there. They didn't really go anywhere. So I said, what if I, what if I reoriented what I was doing? I decided to write stories in this world set from a completely different perspective, completely different character. And instead of having them journey from place to place like the ships would do, they were in one place. And that's how the Black Gods Drums was born. Uh, yeah, I, I still got I to bring in the Midnight Robber, but it's a uh, creeper, Jacqueline, who's the who's the central character now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, you know, like the Black God Strums, it's an alternate history, but also like Brink Shout, there is a lot of history in here. Yeah. And um, Birth of a Nation, 
the first American feature-length film, actually, and racist film, has this dimensional ripping power in your story, which allows demons called Ku Kluxes to enter into our world. And for our listeners, the 1920s, when the story is set, was the height of the KKK. So can you share a little bit about your research on that time period and also your career as a historian and how you brought that in? And have you made it through a full screening of Birth of a Nation? Is that what this book requires? Oh, I can't do it. I would not put myself Let me tell you, by the way, Birth of a Nation is ridiculously long. Like, you've never seen a movie as long as Birth of a Nation. It's got two parts. Yeah, I'm a historian. I study mostly slavery and emancipation, but a while back, I also got interested in teaching a course called Slavery in Film. Um, and, you know, I teach it partly because students love it. Like, I noticed when I taught on comparative slavery or history, if I could bring in a film, uh, students perked up. They just reacted to it. We live in a visual age. Cinema is what it is. I even noticed that when it comes to talking about slavery, nothing like a film makes America wants to have that awkward conversation, right? <laughs> like, when, like, I point out to my students. Twelve years, we're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, I said, let me tell you how movies would come out. Like, nobody would talk about, like, Roots came out in 1977. Huge, big, people talking about slavery. You know, the next time you would have a major movie like that about slavery was Gloria in 1989, mm. right? And then with, uh, about the Civil War, then it was talking about slavery. I was like, Amistad, what did come Amistad, yeah, <laughs> and then Amistad is 1995, right? And so yep. it was like every, wow. every six, seven, eight years, <laughs> A movie would come out about slavery, and then it would be a big talk. Between Amistad and Django and 12 Years a Slave, add on another nine years or so, right? Yeah. And so, and so well, I would remind always- Remind me to ask you how you felt about Antebellum. We'll get there. Yeah. But we'll remind me. I'm, I'm sure you saw it. <laughs> and, so, and so one of the things that I noticed was the interest, the way that these films generate discussions around the issue. And so I started showing at least- one film in my classes, right, to deal with slavery. And sometimes I would show like these foreign films, like one about slavery in Brazil, a great film called Quilombo from the 1980s. It's about a maroon society there. There's dancing and samba in it because the main character sometimes turns into Shango, the god Shango, and it turns back. So it's fascinating. And I just noticed the students got into it more. So I decided to teach an entire class on slavery in film. And in doing so, um, I start off with Birth of a Nation. Because what I do is I chronologically go through the history of film and Birth of a Nation is right there at the eighth, right? Seminal event, right? Uh, the first film that is feature length, as you pointed out, that uses certain camera angles, it uses musical scores the way it does. Uh, and it's also this highly racist movie for what it says both about slavery and the post-slavery experience, right? It's, it's racist on both ends. <laughs> Right, it, it's got his, it covers the bases on racism. And and the third option, it's revered in these communities. You're like, yeah. what? It is. It is in the AFI, American Film Institute's top 100. It is people. It is still taught in film classes. As it is, and in some ways, in a weird way, it, it it's this weird way. Like you have your racist grandpas. It is yeah. the racist, racist grandpa of America. Yeah. It's a national it's treasure. Right, right? Yeah, it's a national treasure. And the modern film industry, as we know it, descends from this film. So take from that what you will, right? And so all this to say, I've had to watch that film and I have foisted it on students to watch it many, many times. Though what we do is we talk about all the problems about it and what Griffith himself wanted to get out of this and why he was such a lost cause reconstruction fanatic, um, that it was based on books that uh, came about, that it was so popular it was shown in the White House, that it was shown to members of the Supreme Court that 
when uh, white Americans would go in and see it, they would faint, the women would faint watching it, uh, even though they're watching often white men in blackface, right? So they, they're well aware this is not a black person, he looks ridiculous, but he's chasing a young white woman. Um, and there's a scene I have in Ringshot that comes from the actual history, I pulled from a newspaper where a man in Florida watching the film um, became so obsessed with what he was watching, he pulls out a gun, of course, Florida, and he uh, shoots at the screen. And they ask him, why did you shoot at the screen? He's like, I'm trying to stop that black brute from, you know, and, I, and so I, I talk to students about, because when they hear this, my students are like, what? <laughs> and I said, I tried to, I said, imagine film as this medium, right? This has been a book before, it had been a theater. But think about this new two-dimensional medium that is, shows these images larger than life. Think about how mesmerizing that was, how hypnotizing. Like, it would be like us walking onto a holodeck, right? Or being in, in some kind of VR, like we go into the matrix or something. Uh, people were reacting to these things. They were bringing their own racism, their own biases and their beliefs. And they were reacting to it though, as this new medium and showing you how the medium can be so powerful, right? Like I said, it had already been a book, it had already been a theater, uh, it had already been uh, in theater, but seeing it on a two dimensional celluloid screen made it yeah. bigger. Never and it creates this like third I don't know I've, we've been reading a lot of sci-fi now so it's like there's you there's me and then there's this third something yes. that's created and I, I feel mm -hmm. like that that third vindication and affirmation of like oh wow black people are very dangerous and yes. they're criminals yeah. Like, and it, yeah it does that it takes that idea that. right everywhere so the first clan is mostly uh, several thousand people in the old states of the Confederacy. It's a terrorist organization whose job is to basically try to derail reconstruction, terrorize the former slaves and any of their allies. Um, it is mostly destroyed by the time, by the 1890s or so, right? Um, partly uh, it's because uh, President Grant has these Ku Klux Klan acts where he cracks down on it with federal troops. And the other part is because they won. Uh, they destroy any form of black power base in the South, political power base. They stop black people from voting. The ex-Confederates take over the South and they win, right? Uh, they, they run the South now by the 1890s. Um, and Jim Crow apartheid is going to be in power for nearly 100 years right after this. And so that first plan disappears for the most part. It doesn't exist. This film, however, is so powerful in its, in the film itself is supposed to be about that first clan, but it's a fantasy version where the clan are the heroes. Uh, and what they did was heroic. They saved the South. They are not terrorists, but they're, they're the good guys, right? Like true revisionist history. Yeah, and true revisionist like history in any possible way. And it's, the, and it's the black people who were the monsters and the brutes and so forth. And the film is so popular in 1915. And think about this. This is just after the era where Confederate monuments are being built everywhere. So. There's a lot going on here. But the film is so popular that uh, in Atlanta, um, a man, Al Simmons and several others, sees the film and is so inspired, he decides he wants to restart the Klan. And so this is where we get the birth of the second Klan. And this second Klan, unlike the first one, uh, expands everywhere, just like the movie does, right? Uh, this second Klan is not just in the South, it's in New England, it's, in the, it's all throughout the Midwest. It is up in Oregon, it's in Seattle. It is in places that have nothing to do with the Confederacy. And it is heavily based on the film. The way they dress yeah. is based on the film. Some of the rituals they carry out is based on the film. And the second clan will end up having anywhere from two to four million members. Wow. So just 
unbelievably. And so this is what I wanted to get at in this uh, in Ring Shout. It's taking place during the birth of the second clan who now uh, has a new enemies list. It, it doesn't like black people, of course, but now it also doesn't like Jews. It doesn't like Catholics. It doesn't like other immigrants. So it's, it's, it's become this massive organization that is also a political organization. And so a lot of that history went into my creation of this story and the reason I decided to set it in the time that I did. So I'd love to hear, uh, like I said, as a kid, I vividly remember going to Stone Mountain as a fifth grader and being told like, this is one of Georgia's most historic mountains. Like uh, looking back, all of that language was just very coded. But as a fifth grader, we were just uh, happy to get out of the classroom right, yeah, um, and, and go somewhere. So, you know, and I, I went to a pretty mixed uh, school. So now I, so one time I was bringing Ben home for Christmas, I want to say, and Ben loves to hike. And so I was just like, I don't even know of any mountains close by. I was like, oh yeah, we'll go to Stone Mountain. Like I remember Stone Mountain as a kid. It's like one of the big things you got to see if you go to Georgia. And so I'm reintroduced to Stone Mountain and this like what was supposed to be a hiking excursion we were supposed to have. And Ben had a moment of like, hold on, like we're pulling up at Robert E. Lee Lane and and seeing all of these Confederate markings and things. And I am also then re-remembering like what is happening? And, you know, of course, we climbed to the top of the heroic stone mountain and Ben was like, this would be like if Nazi mountain was built and people were just visiting it. (laughs) And that was just really the first time I had ever acknowledged that. So I'd love to hear how you even stumbled upon stone mountain and it's craziness because typically people don't know about stone mountain. I know you're a historian, but yeah. Yeah, so it's funny you telling those experiences. I I mean, I didn't have a stone mountain, but I, I grew up in Texas, right? And so... I'm going to tell you what my, te- my textbooks were like uh, through middle school, whatever. A textbook this thick about Texas, because it's Texas, and maybe this much about slavery. Yes. Slavery. Yes, same. This much. I had to hear heroic stories about the Alamo and everything, not knowing that slavery is very much tied into the entire notion of the Alamo in Mexico, that Mexico would abolish slavery, and that these Texans fighting for their independence, many of them had been slaveholders. Yeah. <laughs> so, they made slavery sound like a, a job fair or something. Yeah, it's basically. Like, so these, right, right. People got this opportunity to work. Right. And I was like, okay, I want to work too. I want to be a slave. And then I grew up, I was like, what? Mm. So I can only imagine both of us uh, coming through the school systems where we have, you know, in the South, how they, how they interestingly skew slavery. Not that the North does much better, uh, but it's just, you know, I, I can relate. I can imagine and seeing things that I don't think of, like I think my mother, for instance, uh, <laughs> my mother would not let me watch the Dukes of Hazard. She would not, if she saw that on television in the house, she turned it off, right? Turned it off like she might throw a shoe at the TV, turn it off. And as a kid, you're like, I want to watch the Dukes of Hazard. Everybody's watching the Dukes of Hazard. Generally, leave. Yeah, my mom, right. My mom is this uh, Black Trinidadian Pan African woman who was who had, was having none of it, <laughs> right? She's having, she would not let me go see Star Wars because uh, it didn't have any black people in it. <laughs> Come on, mom. I don't hate that. I so, see, I see it. It took a while to, under, like you said, it, because you're a kid, you don't fully understand. I, and I understood a bit of what she was talking about, but it wasn't enough to me to not watch Robert E. Lee. The Robert E. And Lee. And the messages uh, from the school oh. and the home were conflicting. So you were like, right. who 
is right here. Exactly. Because my mom wants me to make all A's, but hates right. what I'm learning. What's going it's on? What I'm learning, and then what's in popular culture, right? And so I think about these things when you're talking about how you look at it through a child's eye. Like now, I'm like, it just blows my mind. They had a show on television called The Dukes of Hazard, where the main characters drove a car called the General Lee. And on its hood was a Confederate flag. And everybody was okay with that, except and maybe my mom it. and some other people. <laughs> and we walked around being like, oh, girl, you wearing them Daisy Dukes. It's like, I sure am. Yeah. Daisy Dukes. And I, and I said, that is, that's mind-blowing how much the lost cause is, just, is so ingrained in our culture. And it's that same lost cause ideology that allows for the second plan to be born, right? And so I didn't stumble. I didn't know anything about Stone Mountain, really, until I studied actually Birth of a Nation. So I got to have it both hit together. My sister uh, went off to Spelman. Uh, so she's still in, she's one of those, those folks who went went off to uh, the, the HBCU and never left the, never left yep. Georgia. Still, right? still in the AUC, yep. Yeah, she's just still in the AUC. She's a full Georgian, right? Uh, she still, I still remember going down and visiting Strictly Vegetarian in these little spots, you know, when she yeah. went to school. And so, you know, she's a full Georgian now. And but I, I think I had learned about it again when I had learned about the coming of the second clan because they go on Stone Mountain and hold their ritual and it's how it's birthed. And so that's where I learned about it. And so I, when I think about where I wanted to set the story, I had first thought Atlanta because Atlanta and I first thought of the, uh, the early 19, the early riot in the early 1900s in Atlanta, the anti-black riot, of course. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that was in my mind. I knew I wanted to be in the South because I was trying to tell this southern fantasy right marie's got a sword she fights monsters it's a fantasy story it's lord of the rings in the south folks <laughs> yes. so, and then you so, end up in macon i was like right. i never read a book about macon georgia so <laughs> i have some family there but <laughs> and so i was looking for a place and atlanta was just i said i'd done stories set in cairo and all this in new orleans these are big cities i said i want to move away from a big city and i think macon almost just came to me like let's do macon right like why not? And I was thinking, I know I said I wanted to be in the South and I know I'm, I want to, I don't want to go too far. I want to stick with here. Why not make it? And I, I actually plotted out how far is making from Stone Mountain? Can I do this? And how, how fast do cars go in 1920 something? Things you got to think about, like it's a long way between the two. But a lot of things for making just stood out. It's history, it's relationship to slavery, like those cotton warehouses that I'd seen. Um, the fact that it also had this long-held Black population, even if it's not, if it's not like Atlanta's Black population, that's its own separate thing. It still has this, you know, rich cultural history. Uh, and there, there were just a lot of other things that drew me uh, to like why Macon had to be the spot where this is happening, right? And so I'm glad I said it there. Oh, and also, of course, one of the most interesting things, uh, the juke joint I have. Uh, is named the tipping, and that's supposed to be the, the tipping in or whatever, and that's my ode to the juke joint uh, that was um, owned by Little Richard's uh, father <laughs> oh, nice. uh, in Macon, where he used to uh, perform when he was younger. It was called the uh, tipping in. <laughs> so so I it's like, this is Georgia proof, but if you're from Macon, you're like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like, stuff. yeah, you yes. know, you know, right? And so there were little things like that that just drew me to like, okay, this scene, this setting is where, I want to, is where I want to set this. And my sister also knew some folks from Macon, so I got to talk to some of them. And so it's really helpful, you know, and it just became like a good setting, even if the, the climax takes place on Stone Mountain, of course. Not yeah. It, yeah. I, 
Um, before you move on, there was something else that I that made this story very Georgia proof as well. Um, so my mother is not from my father's from Athens, Georgia, and my mother is from Eatonton, Georgia, which is not the same as Macon, but it sort of gives that small town vibe. Um, and in Eatonton, Georgia, that's sort of where that museum, the, the Uncle Remus Museum is. Yeah. And so I remember uh, reading the the bruh fox, bruh rabbit, the like don't throw me the briar patch, patch. Yeah. all of those stories as a child that even if I were to speak to someone else from like Alabama or Tennessee, like a Southerner might not know about those. Right. Like that was something very, like I have not seen those characters. I remember asking you like, you know, bro bear. And you were like, who? And I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm reminded again how ingrained yeah. that is into my Georgia history. So that was also right. like a, like a chef's kiss on when you could tell like somebody has spent time here because I have not heard these stories in a long time. Yeah, it was, no, it was, it was great history. to include those in. I, I loved including those in. You, you hit on it perfectly, right? Like those, those stories are told in different places, but a lot of the ones that were collected early on were from Georgia, right? And so, um, and so it was just the perfect place to have these, to have these stories there, yeah. You know, in the acknowledgement, you, you asked this question, you know, but uh, as you said, Lord of the Rings in Georgia, but you, you asked, you know, who yeah, this says, is your wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, who says sword-wielding heroes and heroines have to be in Middle-earth, Westeros, or even our dreams of African mm -hmm. past? And then you reference uh, Heritage by County Cullen, which yeah. we'll, we'll get to uh, again. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, that just really struck me uh, for a couple of reasons, because, you know, you've assembled uh, like a badass characters, like a D&D &D campaign, right? <laughs> the main protagonist gets a, a traditional magical sword and they're, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, Imaro, where Imaro develops his powers through a traumatic event. This is very similar. It, it hits all these points of like- Charles Saunders, the great late Charles Saunders. Yes. I know. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, it's really sad to- Father of uh, Af modern African fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but for me, you can see that tradition in Ring Shout, but you're, mm -hmm. you're playing with it, right? Because you're putting yeah, it- in and in, in georgia and so can you just yeah share a little bit about you know uh charles uh, sanders and sort of your tradition in sword and soul right uh, and, yeah sword and, and soul term. Yeah. Yeah. sword and soul if people don't know charles saunders comes up with this term uh it's basically the black version of sword and sorcery right and he uh and there's a similarity to him right he's He's growing up and he's uh, reading pulp fiction stories about Conan the Barbarian and all these things. And he's like, where are the black people? Oh, there they are being really weird and misanthropy and antisocial. <laughs> and that was me reading Lord of the Rings, right? Like I loved Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit when I grew up. It was like, where are the black people? Oh, there they are. They live in the East, they ride elephants. That's where the black and brown people are. They're really antisocial for reasons I don't understand. <laughs> they're really unpleasant. Black people are very quiet. Yes, <laughs> black people know they're antisocial. I just mean antisocial in a they're violent and they work with the bad guy, <laughs> right? And so you know that's how I grew up with it. And so you were always looking for something different. And Charles Saunders decided he was going to make something different, right? And it was it's interesting it happened to him when he was in college that he met uh, a lot of African students. He's in college in the '60s, and it's you know it's a heady time. Colonialism is ending. In the U.S., as a civil rights movement, it's on the cusp of Black Power and all this, and he gets really influenced to write his Tomorrow series. Right, he says, "I'm going to write fantasy," and if Conan and all these other things, and Lord of the Rings have this Euro fantasy where people have the big broad swords and they 
ride the horses and knight's armor or what have you, I'm going to set mine in Africa. So what would that look like, right? And he decides to create this character, Imaro, and he creates these African kingdoms and civilizations. And Imaro has a spear, of course, right? And, you know, and it's just this fantastic story. And he's one of the first to do this, right? To pull on uh, this, these ideas of ancient Africa. And the reason I referenced County Cullen there, because, you know, what is it like when we of the diaspora pull on this place that we are not directly related to, right? Slavery cuts us off from this place, but yet we have our memories and we have our romanticizing of it. And you see that in everything from Imaro to Afropunk, right? To uh, go, go watch any Caribbean carnival, right? And you see all of these ways that we kind of hold on to these things and we remake them in many ways. Um, and so it was interesting to see him do that uh, with Sword and Soul. And so when it, when it came to his idea, when I first started writing and thinking of fantasy, that's what I wanted to do. I'm a huge fantasy fan, right? Lord of the Rings, uh, Robert Jordan, Wheel of Time, like one of my favorite. I, like, give me a 10, 12 book fantasy saga where each book is like 700 pages. Don't cry, baby. Yep. I'm there. <laughs> right? More to marry. I want, I want complex world building and everything. And so that's what, that's where I wanted to do. And so I really want to write fantasy. And so my first, my first stories, some of them were heavily political and didactic, like, like Twilight Zone, but it's about race. <laughs> and my others were the ones I was really passionate about were writing these fantasy stories set in this Africa of my imaginations with kingdoms and so forth that pull on African aesthetics and cultures and what have you, right? Like, like ancient Wakanda, <laughs> right? So that's, that's kind of what I was doing in that, in that footsteps of Charles Saunders. Um, and so what's interesting about Ring Shout is that I think I've, I think I've, I don't say I've moved past that, but I think I've, I've expanded beyond just doing that. Right, and so Ring Shout in some ways was like my ode to that, and yet there's expansion to do something more, right? To say like, okay, uh, I understand why Saunders felt he had to go back to an ancient African setting, but maybe I don't have to, right? And there are writers now who are creating uh, secondary fantasy worlds based on the Caribbean islands, right? There's a whole set of books based on that. And I wrote another song called The Things My Mother Left Me where in that, in that setting, it's supposed to be a bit of central Congo, but I bought into Caribbean in there and I bought in Caribbean elements. And someone was like, can you do that? And I was like, why can't I? <laughs> it's fantasy, I can do anything yeah. I want. <laughs> right? And so like, I wrote another story called The Paladin of Galata and one of my main characters in there, it's supposed to be this secondary East African fantasy world that she is very much supposed to be uh, Erica Badu from Mama's Gun, right? That's, that's who she is, down to the grill. That's who I saw them, yep. Right? And so it's like, I, I think you can do all of these things. And so Ring Shout was kind of my, I, I considered in a sense my growth, my understanding where I'm thankful for this legacy that people like Charles Saunders uh, left. But then it's also pulling from what Octavia left and what Toni Morrison, like Toni Beloved is like a huge influence here is pulling from me watching some of Beyonce's formation video. I watched that video over and over again and giving <laughs> ideas of scenes from yes, that. Yes, we from, did. Yeah, yeah, it's from how do I bring in the bro rabbit in these ideas, much like the other author I told you about Kwame, how he does the same thing. He's like, look, I'm going to go to Africa and I'm gonna get these things, but we created stuff here too, <laughs> right? We created jazz here, we created hip hop here, we created reggae and soca and all these things, you know, and merengue. And so 
it didn't, it wasn't like slavery happened and we just stopped creating culture. No, we've been doing it. And so yeah. I, I wanted to find a way that I can channel all of that into a story and still make it a fantasy story, right? And people, I've seen people try to, they try to give it genres and I'm happy like, oh, it's body horror, okay, okay. Uh, gothic horror, sure, sure. Yeah. It's like, what were you trying to do? I was telling a fantasy story. That's monsters, it. Like you said, it's like a D&D &D campaign. You hit, it, you hit it on the head. Uh, I got a main character and she has a sword and she kills monsters. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's as fantasy as it gets. But for um, Saunders, my quick story on Saunders, uh, when I was thinking that this writing game is not working way back in the day, couldn't, couldn't get in, couldn't break in anywhere. I was writing like my stories were too long and everything. Uh, I had stopped writing for a while and then I decided to start writing again. And there was an, I found this black online society. Thank goodness. This was just when social media was kind of popping off, right? I think, I think Black Planet might've still been around. <laughs> took you back, right? It took you back. It took you back. And um, I think I, no, I think by this time Black Planet was gone. I think it was just all my space then. And I ended up writing Skin Magic. And I decided to submit it to this anthology that Charles Saunders was doing. And it went over the length, but Saunders liked it so much, he was like, I'll expand the length limit. And having him say that he personally liked my story that much uh, made, brought me back to writing. So I have to give it up to Charles. After that, I said, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll stick to this writing thing. That's so powerful. I, um, we, we had a couple of questions planned here and I think, let me just find a quote. You had a quote in your book about all, all them grand thinkers lost to the whip. Yeah. I mean, that's just so, did, so did you, yeah. did, did, were you interviewing someone and they said that or? No, I, the notations, yeah. That. No, thank you. That, that's, uh, I'm glad you love those notations because I, I, the notations were fun because they were, the notations were all based on real uh, ring shouts songs that accompany uh, the ring shouts and basically what I was doing I was listening to I was listening to interviews that have been done with people who were talking about what the shout might mean like what do they mean by this shout right and one of and what they were talking about to me came across as so philosophical right and I said like this is what and I try to get this across to students that enslaved people were regular human beings like everyone else right they 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 didn't have to be super heroic or super tragic, they were just people. I mean, they lived their lives and they hated each other at times and they fought and they loved and they did all the things that you and I do. And one of the things they also did, they sat around, they thought, right? They came up with these complex philosophies. And I said, we often don't think of enslaved people that way. We think of them almost as sort of human, right? They, we, they're known simply for what they happen to do and what they happen to endure. But in these, in these shout songs, and sometimes in the spirituals, there's some deep philosophy and cosmology in there. I said, as deep as anything by Kant or, or Habermas or anything else, these are philosophies, right? And so I think just about in that song, In This Field We Must Die, it has these double meanings where is it talking about simply the field uh, that you're working in, or is it talking about the fact that every, the field is the worldly plane and that everyone lives and is born. And like I said, that's as, that's as complex as any, any philosophy per, any philosopher that you might read in class. And so I just think, you know, so many, I, I, that's what I meant there, so many thinkers and others lost to uh, the whip and just this, you know, the everyday drudgery of slavery. 
question? Yeah, I do want to talk about some of the characters. You have the narrator, Maurice, who's the magical sword wielder, Sadie, the sharpshooter, Chef, the demolition expert, Emma, the scientist. And then we were just wondering, can we include Maurice's sword as a character? Sure, it's a living sword. I love magical weapons that are somehow sentient. I always like that idea. They might have wills of their own. Yeah, you never know what they're going to do. Is their will the same as yours? You're not certain. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of like, you know, the not sci-fi person, but like a little bit of like Inspector Gadget. And, you know, the car was played by like Sinbad or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, you're not going there today. Yeah, exactly. I just love that. Yeah, uh, but then also you have Jean, uh, the Gullah woman, whose home mm-hmm. is the base for the demon hunters. Yeah. Uh, you have queer women and straight women. Uh, Black God's drums, Creeper is a you know, 13-year-old girl. Uh, yeah. I know uh, in uh, Dead Jen in Cairo, uh, a woman main protagonist. You have so many women in your stories. Yeah, yeah what's going on with you? <laughs> that doesn't happen every day. Yeah, what's happening? What am I doing? Yeah, why? Yeah, so, um, so what is what has been your feedback uh, with you know representing um, all different kinds of women and yeah. Uh, yeah, how has that been received? Not on wood. I've been getting good reception because you wonder, right? Like with Creeper, I was like, yeah, I'll be quite honest. I mean, me trying to remember like like thirteen year old girls I knew when I was thirteen. So <laughs> I'm basing it on that or. Maybe my cousins or something like Anne Marie, the elder woman, is based on some cousin. So I'm like, do I get it right? Do I? Because people are always like, well, you write own voices. I said, I've never been a 13 year old black girl living in New Orleans <laughs> during the 19th century. So it's not own voices. It's not even close to my voice, <laughs> right? And so you wonder, am I getting these right? And so I've been, I've been grateful that what I've heard is yes. And in this one, I really thought that, like that beginning scene when they're bantering I don't know how many times I thought like oh this is not gonna work people are gonna be like oh I don't I don't buy it and then people are like we love that scene (laughs) we love them going back and forth and so I've been I've just been thankful that you know I didn't get people like yeah um I've never thought that as a woman in my life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this character that that would, that would break me. I'll be like, oh, I got it absolutely wrong. So I've been happy that um, I've been fortunate enough uh, to resonate. The, the characters resonate with people. And they feel real and they feel lived. They do. And, yeah. At the beginning, I also didn't know. Um, I, I I read the book with the audio book as well, mm-hmm. but I think I read the first five pages without the audio book. It didn't really ring to me that they were women for a couple of pages in because I remember I I hadn't seen a name like Maurice before and so I was like oh maybe it's like a male whose name is Maurice and then I was like okay chef is probably a dude Sadie that's pretty girl and then I was like oh wait they're all girls like I I remember having a because I'm just so unused to a female protagonist and if there is a female protagonist it's just the one and surrounded by a group of men or something and they're going to be um, so talking I'm, about the men, or they have to talk about the man at some point. Yes. No, what you said is so, when you're writing, I think you can also transfer it, like, you might think the characters are white, right? Oh, for sure. It, it doesn't, if somebody doesn't specify it directly. And so I, I definitely, I'm actually glad that you said that, because it's kind of like what I wanted to happen. I wanted people, and I hadn't thought of what it must be like just to listen to the audio, because Maurice, if you don't see it mm-hmm. spell. Maurice can sound like Maurice and so forth. Yeah. No, that's great. I like that. That was just a fun, like, 
I don't know, you start reading something and then you're like, let me sit up and read. <laughs> like, right. let, me, let me reread what I just read. And and you're so right. I remember one time I was reading, um, you know, I, I love reading Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. one of my favorite authors. So she's very like, make no mistake, these characters are Black. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but I remember reading one time, uh, what was it, Telegraph Avenue by Michael Chabon. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but um, it's this white guy who whose two main characters are black and Jewish. Mm-hmm. And you don't really know that even by the cover art for me until about maybe the part one in. And then I remember thinking like, I remember thinking like, should I start the book over now that I know that the characters are black and Jewish? Because now I'm reading in a completely different lens. Yeah. There were just no... Like, I like when it plays with it a little bit, but not to the point of like, this is what happens when you're a white person writing as black people, because I didn't know for the first third of your book that your character was black based on how they spoke, what they wore. It it just wasn't quite there for me. I didn't finish that book, but I remember thinking like on page five or six here that I was like, okay, this is a new story. Like, I'm I'm here for it. Like. I think it would have felt differently if I would have found out halfway through Ring Shout that yeah. they were girls, you know? You know, and I think I think you just hit it right there on the head. Like, when, you, when you're when you a marginalized person reading, because, like, we were just talking about coming up, we wanted to see all these things all the time. Yeah, I don't think you can string people along all the way and, aha, <laughs> you know, yeah. halfway through. Because, and then his wife is like, get yeah. your black ass in here. And I'm like, who's? <laughs> Wait, what character's talking? Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I think, you know, that's a, I've heard people talk about like, maybe we should just write colorblind or I was like, no, no, you can't, you can't because people are looking to see themselves, right? People are looking to see these characters. Like, you know, like even with Chef, like people ask me, you know, like uh, she's a queer character, but you know, you definitely explicitly, you know, in the beginning it could, it might not have been, but I said, yeah, I needed, like people are looking for these characters and I don't want them searching, having to wonder or having to Hermione the character. Right, it's like I think Hermione might be brown. Let's make her brown. Yeah. And, fans and then when you say guess. that, and in the movie she's white, it's like, oh, well, yeah, she's, it's not, like, okay. she's not brown. Okay. And then J.K. is like, yes, she is. It's like, well, what? What did you expect this to be? I mean, yeah, we were confused. And to that point, I mean, we're we're almost out of time, but I just, um, you know, Nisi Shaw, the science fiction academic and award-winning mm-hmm. uh, storyteller, she started a program called Writing the Other. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think you're you're part you were part of that. I got to participate in it uh, this time. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just share a little bit about that? Because I think the idea is to prevent those problems, like in Telegraph right. Avenue. Um, so if you could just share a little bit about that program. Yeah. There was. I mean, I only came in a little bit, but just the entire concept. You know, I'm open to it. Like people always ask me, like, you know, do you have any tips? I'm like, I, I need tips. <laughs> right. Like I said, I've never been a 13 year old. Black girl in New Orleans. I have never been a uh, young queer detective in Cairo, right? So obviously, I'm I'm often writing outside my own experience. Otherwise, it would be this guy. It'd be all the heroes in my in my stories. And so, you know, I think um, what was interesting was bringing me on as a person to advise the class was also a good learning experience. Learning from not only a lot of the other writers on how they approach when they write outside uh, themselves, but also in seeing uh, what writers, up and coming writers are struggling with, what they're trying to do. And so it was just, it was interesting in talking to them and seeing how 
seeing, I'm grateful at times that they're asking these questions. Sometimes they get a little too far down the rabbit hole. I'm like, just write the story. <laughs> but other times it's good that people are having these conversations. I said, simply being aware of it is good. I said, because when I grew up, I was coming up reading books. I could tell that people who had written this didn't have a slight awareness of what they were. They didn't have a clue. Right, J.R. Tolkien writing over and over again, those black fellows when he's talking about the evil folks and so forth, he doesn't have a clue. He's not thinking it at all, right? His, the weird anti-Semitic tropes that hang around the dwarves, he's not, it's not in the top of his mind, right? And so I think it's good that people are aware of these things and they're thinking about them. And so that experience was, was good for all of those reasons, right? Is, and Nizzy and them and uh, K Tempest Bradford, they've been doing this for a while. And they really, I mean, they have it down to a science, <laughs> right? On, they have entire uh, theories and uh, acronyms that I can't all remember that have to do with, you know, when you're thinking and you're writing outside yourself, you should be aware, right? And so a lot of times people ask me questions, it was just uh, like, I know you wanna do this thing, but you should be aware that this is a controversy. And if you don't know that the controversy exists, you're going to stumble because you think you're doing something perfectly fine and you've just stumbled into it. It's like you walking in on somebody's argument, right? <laughs> and you, walk, you didn't know the people were having an argument. You walk in, you say the wrong thing. You know, and that happens a lot. People are just, they're just unaware. And, and part of this saying, like, if that's the case, you should be aware of a lot of, if you're going to write about something, you should be well aware of it in some ways and an understanding of it before you step into writing about it. And you should maybe have some places that you don't go. Maybe there's places that I, I just don't go, right? It's not for me to talk about. Yeah, just because I talk about that, I also know my land's none of my business. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's not for me to bring up. It's not for me to flesh out. Um, there are a thousand other things I can talk about. And I can let somebody who really understand it from that community to examine that. There are a lot of times I do that. And it's just sometimes knowing that. And it was interesting to see people who were, I just feel like I want to write. I was like, but why? Why do you feel you want to talk? You have a wonderful story. Why do you think you have to go down that road? Maybe that road isn't for you. <laughs> Not your road to go down. Well, I mean, we're, we love the roads you've taken us. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and honestly, you know, um, I, you know, I, I was looking back through a haunting of tram car and, uh, there's this throwaway line in there, which, um, you know, I, I was in Cairo for a little bit and I studied Arabic for three months in Palestine. And, and there's a line you have in that story where it says much of the crowd uh, had departed to sleep out Cairo's midday heat. And I'm telling you, like, I'm like only someone who has like yeah. an intimate knowledge of Cairo because you go there 2 a.m., whole full families are walking around at night. Yeah. And so it, it, it's really reassuring to like in the midday yeah everybody goes to yeah and if you exactly and I've, I've been there so that's that came from actually a direct experience like in exactly the, like you get up at six in the five in the morning you go to things at like certain time the market's closed except for the tourists and i remember one egyptian guy he said look at the tourists walking around here like the camels you look your your mouth's all hot you know how hot it is no way i'm going out it's time to go to sleep exactly. but again those are those little things that you know and that's why Sensitivity readers are excellent. Uh, certainly they've helped me in my recent novel, Master of Jin, because there is a difference of going to Cairo and even staying there for a short while, for a few weeks. You know, you can stay there for a few weeks, a few months, that's different than living there. <laughs> so when I did Cairo, as much as I was happy that I had some memories and I could look some things up, I also need to talk to people who, you live here, you live here 24 seven, really talk to me about 
what I might read in a magazine or in a book and what you actually experience. And so that's my plug for sensitivity readers. They are very helpful in many ways. I got just one. I uh, I want to hear about uh, Viacon uh, just oh, a little fine. bit because yes, I would love for you to um, here's what Bia is and and some uh, of the the things that y'all have had to deal with to just like keep it black. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny you say that. First of all, so one thing I should say: um, the idea of Fire came from uh, the people might be familiar with the original Fire magazine. Uh, by Zora Neale Hurston in the Harlem Renaissance, right? These young writers at the time who were trying to do something different, right? This is the 1920s and there is this expectation that the entertainment that should come out should be about anti-racism, of course, right? And should uh, should uh, talk about and should try to show different images for Black people. And that's a lofty goal, but some of these writers felt that was stifling. They said, uh, some of your respectability ideas uh, cut out some of the things we want to talk about. They cut out uh, certain poor people and queer, ide and queer ideas that we want to talk about in our literature. We want the freedom to talk about what we want. And so they did this thing called fire. They said they are here to, quote unquote, burn up the old bourgeoisie ideas. And we're just going to write about everything. And they have characters in there like Cordelia the Crude, uh, this black prostitute. And they talk about sex and there are queer characters. And they just... They talk about crime and they just talk about all of these things that a lot of other, uh, a lot of black uh, activists and so forth at the time, especially like Du Bois and all these, I love Du Bois and all these folks were like, you know, they were clutching their pearls over it. They were like, no, we're going to put it out here because it's all us as well. Um, and they put that out. And so I had come up with this idea and I pitched it uh, to uh, Troy Wiggins, who is, who edited Fire for a long time. And I said, what if we did like a one-time magazine and we called it fire and it was like all black speculative fiction and it was just this is before I did ring shout but it was kind of like in that vein I want to break rules I want to just do what we want to do right it doesn't it doesn't have to be set in some uh, fantastic romantic Africa it doesn't have to always you know it doesn't have to have quote unquote positive uh what is it my word that I hate hearing the positive black character right <laughs> the strong black woman character it doesn't have to have it can have whatever you want Right, it can be complex and just real. And he's like, that's a great idea. And he had created this space called um, NSS, right? Which was, I'm not gonna give you the name here, but I'll just say uh, Zero Neil Hurston and them had a name for the Manor House where all the black writers met. And he decided to name it after this, this uh, NSS where black creatives could simply come and talk. And NSS has this rule, it's a, it's, it exists on a platform and its rule is, are you black? <laughs> you can get in. That's it. Because we want everybody to feel safe here. They can talk about what they want to talk about. They can just be open and just be real with each other and talk about the challenges they face. Pitch ideas that you think uh, won't be available, won't be as accessible outside the black community, right? And so it just became this great place. And so he pitched the idea there and they loved it. And me and myself, I walked away from it. I was still finishing up my dissertation. I was like, it's a great idea. I have no time to help any of you do this. And so all this to say that all I did was I had that original germ of an idea and I thought it would be like one magazine. Uh, these uh, younger folks at, um, folks who would have been in the street, these younger folks at, at uh, Troy's thing, including Troy himself, including writers like Justita Ireland who put up the money for the magazine, just blew it up. 
beyond my idea of one magazine, they made it they made it a full several magazines. Now they've put on a whole con. And I'm sitting there like, Wait, yep. <laughs> I just showed up and I said, hey, what about this idea? Then I was gone. <laughs> yeah. So all the credit goes to them for turning this into making this a reality, making it a full-on magazine, getting writers, phenomenal back writers. You know, there was, and part of it came about because it found out that in the sci-fi black short story, in the sci-fi short story market, black writers were like less than a few percentage, like maybe like less than five, 8% of what they were publishing. And all of these major sci-fi publishing folks who are paying good money now, this is money that uh, black writers can certainly use to get a new computer or what have you. They were saying they couldn't find black writers. So Fire was like, well, we can find them. We're, we got them from, we got black writers from Mississippi to Nigeria, <laughs> right here, doing phenomenal work. We get so many, we got to turn folks down, right? And we, we publish the best that we see. And so why is it that we can find them? What magical tool do we have that we find them and you can't? And so they've been putting out great magazine. Magazines has won a World Fantasy Award. Troy won a World Fantasy Award for his editing. Now they've expanded. I didn't even know about the con until it was happening. And I was like, when I saw the con, so I don't know if you've ever seen, like, uh, they did a, um, a documentary once on Soul Train, right? And there's a part there where, uh, where it talks about when Don Cornelius, rest in peace, still can't believe Don is gone. And Don Cornelius uh, was talking about he invited James Brown on the set, and James Brown was looking around, it was so professional. He was like, uh, there must be some white people who are backing you on this. Who's backing you on this, brother? And he was like, no, this is us. We, we just did it ourselves. And like, um, and uh, James Brown would go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he would talk, and after a while, he'd be like, yeah, but who's funding this, bro? <laughs> he'd be like, no, it's just because right. I haven't, I haven't seen this in my lifetime. Right? Yep. Because <laughs> it was like, this has to be, there has to be some white benefactor doing this, because nobody, and when I saw Firecon, that's what I asked him. I said, who's back in your head? Right. <laughs> who are the donors? It was phenomenal, right? And they and did who it. are the they, donors, uh, like, I'm sure they've had to turn some people away to be oh, like, yeah that we are protecting this space. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure I'm sure they faced some sort of backlash and were like- Oh, you, you're gonna get them, yeah. I, I, and you already know, I, I had people being like, if, if we did Latino week, you would feel a way. I was like, no, I wouldn't. I, I truly- Because wouldn't. I probably, unless I was Latino, you know, I would not. And my last name is Latino. My last name is Spanish. <laughs> my still wouldn't show up. <laughs> Right, and I was I'm like, like you I know my totally face. You should totally do that. Steal yeah. this idea, yes. But I can tell you that from what I've heard from them, and so one of the editors of Five is probably if she watches watches, she'll be raising her hand. So I'll make sure. I have seen many times, but I, I'm, I have access to the back channels and seeing people uh, submit. They constantly have to turn away white right white writers who will submit anyway. And it's never happened to me. I've Just seen books. I've seen books. So like, we're doing queer sci-fi. I'm like, okay, not going to submit. We're having I've a Muslim seen, cookout. Excellent. Yeah, I've seen many things. And I've like said, that's yeah. excellent. That's not for me. I have, sure, I have the great idea. Because somebody, I remember one said, why don't you submit one of your stories? I said, because they're looking for queer writers. Just because my character doesn't make me a queer writer, right? So. I, I, and I told that to Ben, you know, of course, he can, he, you have, you're my, my mold for the community. So I was just like, what is it about white people like when it literally says black people like because because it's black people we are so 
uh, innately aware when things are not for us. So yeah. We, we will, yeah, yeah. even when some, like, somebody be like, why didn't you come to my thing? It's like, oh, well, it's not for me. You, your, your flyer <laughs> had the following people on it. And they were like, yeah. well, I didn't say that. And I'm like, but we are just hyper aware yeah. of when things are not for us. So, and Ben was like, saying to me like white people have never been told nothing is for them that's what you yeah. like that's how deeply ingrained that is yeah and i was like how it says black here and he was like they still will think it's for them or they think it's black adjacent black friendly and i'm like no <laughs> or it's like no but i wrote i wrote black writers i, I wrote black characters can i submit yeah. and it's and, and I'll go to auditions as an actor and they'll say, looking for African-American, 25 to 30, and I will see white people in the room. And I'm just like, I would never do this. No, you would never. And it's just, yeah, it's bizarre like that. And I do think, I think Ben has a point. It has to do with this now power and privilege. It reminds me when I was in college, I think I, I took a sociology, you know, when a professor would say something to just blow your mind and he would say like, you ever notice like if there's a group of uh, men talking, um, like this is a circle and they said, uh, the way our society can train, if a woman walks up to that circle, she probably won't enter the circle and just start talking. She might actually right. stand there and then somebody will acknowledge, say, they said, if it's a group of women talking, a man will feel that he has every right to just walk in there. And just, he'll just end up, he'll just suddenly make it about him. What y'all doing? <laughs> right? Hey, hey I everybody. Hearing that, I remember that like going off on my brain, boom. And then I translated it to race. I said, I've seen that. I've seen a group of black people talking and someone white will walk in and just like, oh, be talking to be like, oh, I saw that TV show too. I don't, we don't know who you are. Yeah. You know, like I've and never now you're seen compromising the space. Mind. We went from talking about what we yeah. wanted and now you're centering yourself. It's, it's so bizarre. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, there is one scene in the book where you actually play with that trope a little bit. That Maurice goes to this like white run we haven't, you know, we haven't talked about uh, one of the main villains yeah. in, in Ring Shout. Richard Clyde. Um, Richard Clyde, which is terrifying. But Maurice actually goes into uh, the butcher's uh, store yeah. at one point, and she just, like, waltzes right through. Yep. And, and, I remember and, sweating when that happened, because I was like, oh, little black girl's about to walk up. Yeah, yeah, my, my wife was like, she got no business in there. She has no <laughs> That Yeah, that my would wife be was actually discretion. mad. She was, like, mad. Yes. Like, why are you in there? <laughs> that, that's when we all want to throw our popcorn at the screen and be like, "Why is she doing? What's going on? Oh my gosh!" But I mean, that scene is great. I don't. I'm trying. Yeah. We're trying not to give a whole lot of spoilers. But yeah. there's this scene where like all these like nice KK families are like eating this rotting raw maggot meat, and yeah. one of the best lines I think is um uh, like the subtitle "Wholesome food for the moral white family." <laughs> moral white family. Yeah, and um, love it. And I don't, and <laughs> reading that though, like I was thinking, like, what is the wholesome food for the moral white family of today? You know, I was sort of yeah. left with that question. Um, I hope there's a lot of layering there to unpack. And some of this is so it's so it's almost effortless because if you're familiar with the history, again, the Klan was so big they had places like this, eateries and different things, and they would have these pictures of a Klan member with Uncle Sam. They're hugging, <laughs> doing it so. And it was just, and they were such, they were, they were very moral. I mean, they are, they were heavily behind, for instance, prohibition, right? They were worried that foreigners were coming in from Germany with these weird German things, uh, these Germans like named Anheuser and, and Bush and, and they were, they were perverting the American family through this beer drinking. 
<laughs> these things. So, you know, it's like, it's so bizarre. And so some of these notions of this morality and all these things, you know, it was like, it was so much of it was just there to pluck from, right? And to just put it in here. But yeah, like you're telling me there and I'm like, oh, wow, I'd love to teach that class in my book. And I get all those layers of the meat and the whole, that's a great question. What is the wholesome moral uh, notion for the white family of today? Goodness. Especially after this last election, that would be a great question. Yeah, I was. I what was are y'all eating? And just to close this out, do you want to just share um, when your 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 debut novel is coming? The novel is yet coming. to write a novel. All these are novellas and novelettes, so you could share right. a little bit about that. So the, yeah, the the debut novel will be uh, basically set in the same world as a, my first short story. Um, my big, my extension, my first short story, but the, my first big short story was a story called The Dead Jin in Cairo, which anybody can read for uh, free on tour.com, or you can listen to it in a podcast with an excellent narrator, by the way, on Audible. Pardon me, you can listen to it. But that was a short story I wrote at first. It was actually a novelette. Um, it was published in 2016. Uh, and after that, uh, another, another story I didn't expect to to gain a, to gain a claim and so that helped me push forward to do the, a, a novella called the haunting of Tramcar 015 set in that same world i think that came out in i want to say 2019 and so i went from short story to novella now it's a novel set in that same world it's called the master of jinn and it returns us to the main character uh from the first short story by the name of fatma uh and she is an investigator an agent with uh, the Egyptian Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities. <laughs> because in this, 1912, in this 1912 Cairo, uh, there is steampunk uh, and there's also magic because the jinn have returned to the world. And so uh, this is the first uh, novel I get set in this uh, world. So I'm, I'm really happy because I really got to expand the world. Uh, I kind of took the world out for a test spin in uh, The Haunting of Tramcar 015. Uh, and now I get to expand it even further uh, in the novel. So I, I hope people, I hope it's, I hope it's what they, they've been wanting. Yes, thank you so, so much for this time. No, thank you guys. This was great. I, I do a lot of these. And so when, I'm, when I tell you it was great, because I have some where I'm like, oh, I got to ask the same questions. <laughs> the same thing. And like my wife has to listen to me in the other room. She's like mimicking almost. Oh, you're saying that thing too. <laughs> And this is one time I actually got to say a few different things. So that was great. You guys had some great in-depth questions. I, I like them, yeah. Awesome. We so appreciate you. Say hello to your twins for us. And <laughs> we are waiting uh, for the novel. Yeah, that's in May. Right. Perfect. Thank you so much. So long. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sci-Fi Sci. Next week, you're in for a brand new experience as well. We will be watching the anime Cannon Busters created by LaShawn Thomas. Now, LaShawn first created this as an American fantasy comic book series, and then later, Netflix picked it up. So sit back and watch Cannon Busters with us and let us know what you think and tune in for the show. Love y'all. Take care, y'all. Bye, y'all.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.